In March 2015, the outcome of an overlooked but vital war hung in the balance. The strategic Yemeni city of Aden, once the world's busiest port, had been invaded by a mixture of Iran-backed Houthi fighters and armoured units. If they seized Aden, their coup against the UN-backed government would be complete, and Iran would have a new proxy capable of disrupting a vital Red Sea choke point. I'm your host, James Patton Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And to take a step-by-step, blow-by-blow through this pivotal battle, I've invited Dr. Michael Knight onto the podcast. Michael is the author of 25 Days to Aden and a fellow of the Washington Institute. And it's through his cutting-edge first-hand research that he tells us the largely unknown story of this crucial operation. Michael, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm very good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. No, not a problem at all. I'm actually really excited to get stuck in to the topic of your new book, 25 Days to Aden, the unknown story of Arabian elite forces at war. Now, our listeners know that I work a lot on the global spread of weaponized drones. It's safe to say I drone on, excuse the pun. And sadly, one of the places that this global proliferation of drones is having a massive impact is in Yemen, with Yemen being a launch country for the transnational drone attacks by Houthi terrorists that occupy the south of the country. So I'm super excited to learn from you today, Mike. Take us back to Aden, to 2015, to this battle between Arabian forces and the Houthis, and perhaps start by telling us why this war was taking place in the first place. This was the start of the Yemeni civil war. The war in Yemen since 2015 was not a transition from a very peaceful country to a suddenly war-struck country. Yemen had always had a lot of internal conflicts, and particularly since the Arab Spring in 2011, when the government essentially collapsed. What really happened after the Arab Spring in 2011 is that one particular group, northern tribesmen called the Houthis, gained great support from Iran and began to expand their control across the country. And then in late 2014, they did a coup where they took over the capital, Sana'a, kicked out the UN-backed government of Yemen and began thinking about how they could expand out to control the rest of the country. So this was a Iran-backed coup by a movement that models itself on Lebanese Hezbollah. And one of the first battles that was fought to try and contain them was the Battle of Aden, where southern people in Yemen, who considered themselves quite independent from those in the north, decided that they didn't want Houthi tribesmen rolling down from the north and taking over their city. They wanted to rule themselves. And they got help from the Gulf Coalition, which is led by Saudi Arabia. But in the context of Aden, most of the forces were provided by the United Arab Emirates, who listeners will know from you know city-states like Abu Dhabi and Dubai. Okay then, Mike. So that gives us some broader context. But who specifically is fighting here? Because am I right in thinking that these Gulf states, and like you state, especially the UAE, pulled together a 10-nation coalition and launched the biggest military operation they have ever launched unilaterally? Yeah, that's quite right. In the uh, late 2014 period, the Yemeni government, backed by the UN, called for military assistance from the UN and from the Arab League. 
and the Yemeni uh, forces received backing from this Gulf coalition, which was led by Saudi Arabia, included 10 Arabian countries, uh, the most militarily capable of which was the United Arab Emirates, the UAE. And what was really interesting about this particular coalition is that it didn't involve America, didn't involve Britain or France or even Russia or China. It was local regional states banding together to do something on their own because none of the superpowers or great powers would do it for them. The UN wouldn't act, NATO wouldn't act. So Saudi Arabia, the UAE and the other Arab states did it for themselves. Their motive here was to prevent the Iran-backed Houthis from establishing a state on the Arabian Peninsula, because of course Yemen is attached to southern Saudi Arabia, to Oman, it sits there not too far away from the two holiest cities in Islam, Mecca and Medina, down on the southwestern Saudi coastline. So for them, this was an existential issue. It's a bit like when the Soviets put nuclear missiles in Cuba. For the US, that was an existential issue. If something really serious happened in Mexico, for the US, that would be an existential issue. Well, it's like that for the Gulf states. So they mobilized, and for the first time, they ran a huge air campaign and numerous operational maneuver groups on the ground inside Yemen. And they did all of that without any real US, UK, French assistance. You see, this is fascinating to me because you're embroiling us in global politics here. We're in 2015. We've had some issues off the back of the Arab Spring. We've had, you know, arguably by 2015, an intervention in Libya that's going terribly wrong. The rise slowly of ISIS is coming in the background, Syria is starting to rage. Am I right in thinking that the reason why the West isn't going to get involved, isn't going to back this Emirati coalition, is simply because they've already had enough and there isn't the public support to get involved in Yemen? Maybe with drone strikes here or there, the United States and the coalition are pretty good at those at this point. I mean, a controversial term to say good, especially with the amount of civilian casualties and the very opaque nature of the drone regime itself. But is that the political mood at that moment in time, that if you want this done, go and do it yourself? Yes, at the time, the United States was trying to complete the nuclear deal with Iran. And it wasn't interested in fighting Iran at that moment. It was interested in reducing tensions with Iran. And for the Gulf states, they had a very different objective. They said, no, even while the nuclear deal is being done by the Obama administration, the Iranians are trying to get a toehold on our continent, on our Arabian Peninsula. And we can't allow that. We can't allow, in the same way that Lebanon was taken over by Hezbollah, we cannot allow a new Hezbollah to emerge on our southern flank. There's always been this idea of an Iranian crescent that you know comes out of Iran, and you can imagine like two arms reaching out. One goes over the north, linking Iran through Iraq and Syria into Lebanon, and the other one comes around the Arabian Peninsula, and that pincer ends in Yemen. And they said, look, it's actually happening right now. And indeed, at the start of the Yemen war in 2015, the Iranians boasted that they now controlled four Arab capitals. Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, and Sana'a in Yemen. Eventually, the Gulf states had enough and they decided to go do something on their own. They also wanted to show that they could do something on their own. And by that stage, 
they'd had enough training, they'd had enough equipment from the West that they went and they did that. And of course, the Obama administration and other US administrations had been encouraging partners to do more for themselves, to be less reliant on the Americans and to look after their own security a bit more. And when they did this in 2015, Suddenly, the US government decided that it didn't like it so much when its partners went and did stuff on their own, and that it was actually very unsettling when they did that, especially when they did it with US weapons, you know, providing... Or even worse, Mike, they start buying Chinese weapons. That's correct. That would be the worst. And the fact is, you know, 25 Days to Aden is is an interesting account of how Arabian forces or or any non-Western military blends Russian... Chinese, US and European equipment together and gets the best out of each of them. You know, you'll see in the book that, for instance, going very detailed for a second, the Cornet anti-tank guided missile is in many ways preferred over the Javelin and the UAE forces in Aden are using both. The Javelin is a superb anti-tank weapon, but it has range limitations and any Houthi sniper with a anti-material rifle can hit a javelin gunner from far further away than the javelin gunner can shoot, and the javelin post is very distinctive. So if you want to survive in that environment, you can't use the world's best anti-tank guided uh, weapon in the javelin. You have to use a cornet that has much longer range. You see, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. Well, it's these little technical details that obviously give us a flavour of the battle to come and the type of war that is fought. So the first major battle of this conflict, as we come in, the focus of your book is this battle for Aden in 2015. Now, I know that you're a military historian with your king's training. So tell us, why is Aden so important historically and in 2015? Well, particularly to a Brit, Aden has a, a certain emotional connection, which is that at the tip of the Arabian Peninsula on the Indian Ocean, Aden became a trading port of enormous importance after the Suez Canal was opened, because suddenly it was astride the world's busiest waterway, the one that had cut an enormous amount of time on east to west naval movements. So this place was perfectly positioned to exploit the Suez Canal and it became the world's busiest port. It's also a wonderful city with a very interesting geography. It's built around a dormant volcano. So you imagine a a city built on the inside of a crater, that's the old city, which they just call crater. Then it also has the new city built around the tribal suits as the city comes out and the British, as they're building all of their colonial garrisons there uh, in the 40s, 50s and 60s, all of the streets are named after British aircraft, Lancasters and Avros and all the camps are named after World War II battles, Salais, Salerno. The city itself is full of amazing artefacts. You know, you have a, a little bed that's like Big Ben, but their smaller version there that looks out over the harbour. You have statues of Queen Victoria, these huge bronzes that have survived numerous wars. And even after the British left in the 70s, are given a a subtle placement. The Queen Victoria statues are left in the corner of a park where they're left alone. They're not melted down or destroyed. They're just a part of the city's old history before Arabs became independent again and formed southern Yemen. 
So Aden itself is is just this marvellous place. It just has this sort of exotic feeling. The topography is very dramatic with these 700-foot-tall volcanic cliffs looming above you. The sea is this beautiful kind of teal green, and the architecture in Aden is really baffling. It almost looks like Milton Keynes or something, many of the areas, because these were some of the first British-built concrete flats you know, of the sort that you would find in London or one of the new cities, but here they were being built in this exotic corner of the world to house the garrison and their families in the uh, 40s, 50s and 60s. This was one of the last places that Britain actually built as a colonial garrison city at the point at which we had left many of the other places. We concentrated everything on Aden. You had me at these amazing cliffs and you lost me at Milton Keynes. I'm (laughs) I'm afraid I'm from Peterborough, so that's the end of that one for me. But (laughs) the thing that struck me there, Mike, is that when you start to plan out the positioning of Aden for us in our mind and, and make it clear just how much it's on the edge of that gulf of Aden, then it can, in theory, if you lose Aden to hostile forces, then those hostile forces control the entryway to the Suez Canal. And then let's think about that for a second, because it was that container ship just a couple of years ago that went sideways for a few weeks in the Suez Canal, the Evergreen, and shut off global supply chains. So none of us could get our deliveries from anywhere. So that's how important Suez is for the whole global movement of international trade. Yes, quite right. When the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal. That's it, the Ever Given. That's right. When the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal, it was costing the world five million uh, pounds a minute. And, you know, this is what would happen if the Houthis were able to close the Suez Canal, the Babel Mandeb Strait there. You know, in a sense, Adam's position right there on the Suez Canal means that Adam can also close the Suez Canal. And so for that reason, the international community should definitely have cared that the Houthis were trying to take over this place. You know, right now, the Iranians are able to control the Strait of Hormuz in the east, in the Gulf. And this would have then given them control of the Suez Canal as well. And of course, we've seen attacks on international shipping take place either from Iran or from Houthi-held parts of Yemen on the Mercer Street last year, which killed the captain of that vessel, a Romanian citizen, and the British security guard. And that was an attack by three drones on that particular occasion. So we've seen that by holding a strategic footing in Yemen, there is an ability to continue to attack international shipping. So we can see why this was a focal point for the start of the war in Yemen. Now, before we get into this, I've got a technical question for you, Mike. I'm saying Aden, you're saying Eden. Am I being kind of a colonial drawl, a British drawl with my speak? Am I being incorrect here, politically incorrect by saying Aden? <laughs> yeah, good question. When I started this project, I said Aden. By the time I finished it, I more often saying Aden. Because that's what I was hearing from my interviewees. Ah. The Arabs definitely don't pronounce the A's the same way we do. And how long did you spend out there to research for this book? Well, from about 2006 to 2010, before the current war, I would visit when I was working in Yemen, supporting a lot of the oil and gas companies with their security needs. And then from 2015 onwards, I went back to Yemen to go and embed with the UAE, Saudi, Sudanese, 
and Yemeni security forces in the war. And so I saw all the different front lines from 2015 through to 2018. And I spent numerous periods embedded with those security forces, um, you know, usually a couple of weeks at a time. It allowed me to see the entirety of the war, and in particular, Adam again, under these new uh, post-battle conditions. And it also enabled me to live with many of the military officers who had actually fought the Adam campaign. And so in the evenings when they were not on operations, we would sit and we would discuss the battle and get maps out and they would walk me through their experiences of it. And that gave me enough to plan out the book and to realize this, this battle in Aden was a really interesting, dynamic example of a, a small, modern battle being fought by non-Western militaries, but with the most advanced technologies and tactics. And then what I did was to go back in great depth and do multi-hour interviews with each of them with a lot of the documentation that I had managed to get from the UAE government, you know, the daily logs of the headquarters, all that kind of detailed record keeping that you need to jog loose the memory of people. Because as I said, even within three to five years, a soldier will not quite fully remember the way things happened and things will start getting mixed together, particularly if they've done subsequent operations in Yemen. So, you know, for me, as I put in the book, you have to combine interviews with the people who were there to find the things that never make it into the records. But you also have to have the records so that you can capture the things that people naturally forget, even within one, two, three, five years. I couldn't agree more, Mike. That is how history is written. From biblical fame to its fabled great walls, Babylon was home to kings, conquerors, and wonders of the ancient world. But what do we actually know about this legendary city? And how much is still shrouded in mystery? Join me, Tristan Hughes, every Sunday throughout May on the Ancients as we delve into the story of Babylon. We'll be covering topics varying from the King Nebuchadnezzar II and how he forged a massive Babylonian empire. We'll be exploring the mystery of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, looking at world-renowned objects such as the Cyrus Cylinder, and also looking at Babylon in the aftermath of one of the most well-known conquerors in the whole of history, Babylon after Alexander the Great. That's all to come this May on The Ancients, every Sunday. 
you know, you can tell I'm excited to get into this. I'm meandering us all over the place with different questions. So apologies to our listeners. But I'm going to open the floor to you now because I want to hear exactly what you've learned about this battle for Adam. Well, first of all, there's no need to apologize about meandering around the subject because <laughs> this is a really weird book. You know, it's not about American or British military forces. It's about United Arab Emirates and Yemeni forces. And who writes a book about that? I do. Uh, the reason being that I want to show how other armed forces around the world are undertaking modern war. Because as we see in Ukraine, you know, you can't just look at US, UK doctrine, French doctrine, Russian doctrine. You know, other people are making it up themselves as they go along. And that's really how 21st century war is being fought. Absolutely. And to go further than that, I mean, by analysing battles like this and wars like this, we can also get a glimpse into what the future threats to our own forces might be. I remember that I would used to talk about the fact that the Houthis are using drones to fire them at the capital cities of our traditional allies, like in, in Abu Dhabi and UAE, and that these Iranian-supplied drones that are supplied to the Houthis could be used on the cities of Europe in the future. And you'd get people rolling their eyes like us being over the top and you look this year sadly and last year you're getting these Iranian supply drones very similar systems supplied to the Russians and hitting the capital city of Ukraine a capital city of Europe so you have to analyze these non-western accounts of war to understand what the next generation of warfare is going to look like precisely and you know I spent a lot of time with the Iraqi security forces Kurdish Peshmerga in their operations against Al-Qaeda and then later Islamic State and then later ISIS and in combination with the things I saw in Yemen, it really gave me a sense of the strengths and the weaknesses of some of our partner forces. You know, there are some things they do that are at least as good as the way we do them because they've been trained alongside us. And that would include, for instance, being in an Emirati armoured convoy moving around in a roadside bomb infested environment is not that different from being inside a British or an American convoy moving around in Iraq back in the day. But, you know, there are some things that are very different. When you pull up at a village, you don't have a bunch of people who are relying on one interpreter per platoon to get them through. No, every single soldier in that convoy speaks Arabic. Every single one is attuned to the local cultural conditions. And it changes everything about that environment. So there are some ways they've learned a lot from us, and then there are other ways we could learn quite a lot from them. And I wanted to get some of that across. One of the other things I've learned is how much drones have changed warfare in the Middle East. And what's interesting about 25 Days to Aden, which is set in the first half of 2015, is that this is one of the last tactical engagements in which drones were not a major part. And you might say, well, how does that teach you about drones? What it taught me in watching this is that, you know, many of the things that were done to protect forces in this book, that were done to covertly insert an attack force into the defensive pocket at Aden so it could break out by surprise, well, that wouldn't work anymore. You know, this battle saw people using terrain masking, such as I put my armoured forces hidden away inside this valley where there's no direct line of sight to the Houthi-held parts of, of Aden. Well, that wouldn't work anymore. Now, you would never be able to generate that level of surprise if you tried to do this right now. So it's one of the last wars that you will see fought with that kind of 
protection from surveillance. Now, surveillance is almost ubiquitous. It really made me aware of the fact that you just couldn't get away with this anymore. Even now, eight years later, to try and covertly assemble 120 armoured vehicles inside an area so that you could do an armoured breakout, that would be extraordinarily difficult to achieve now. You see, that's fascinating. You almost make it sound like it's the last of the old wars, almost like a Blitzkrieg-esque way of fighting a battle on the ground. What type of battle was the Battle for Aden? Are we are we safe to say this is a predominantly urban warfare environment? And in that respect, it is a bit foreboding to what comes out today with a major focus on the core battle zones within cities. Yes, I- Adel is very much an urban battle in a littoral environment, which is, you know, classic where we think many of the key battlefields are going to be in the future because the cities are clustered around the littoral areas. You know, they are the strategic assets. They have the large population centers, economic centers. So, you know, this is exactly that. It's a battle for a port. It's the Houthis driving down from the north and linking up with flipped garrisons of the Yemeni army who have defected to them, and it's them then clustering for an attack on the second largest city in Yemen, which is also its largest port city. And the nature of the battle is of local tribesmen and urban civilians arming themselves very lightly and trying to prevent this takeover of their city by tank-armed forces, very veteran fighters from the north who had just taken over most of the rest of the country. And, you know, what the defenders had in their favour was, to some extent, terrain, quite dense cityscape environment. They had, almost from the beginning, Arab coalition air power, And that air power was not particularly precise at the start, but it could do what you would call battlefield air interdiction, meaning it could sort of clog the arteries of armoured forces heading southwards towards the city, and it could attrit, to use the American phrase, those forces as they're coming down. So perhaps the full weight of the Houthis didn't fall upon Aden as a result of the Arab air power. But what they very quickly realised in the Gulf Coalition is We can't really help the urban fight and we can't really use air power effectively unless we have ground observers. Boots on the ground are essential. And so they decided, let's insert an eight-man special forces team into this defensive pocket, use them to work out who's who in the resistance and how they can be better organised and supported. And at the same time, maybe let's blunt some of these armoured attacks coming in. Right, I see. So... Let's just take stock of that. You've got this armed resistance force that know the Houthi rebels are coming down from the north, who are are pretty well armed. They're coming down in a convoy to take the city or perhaps try and lay siege to it. And so what the Emirati coalition does is put in a select group of special forces to try and coordinate that defence whilst also launching a simultaneous air attack to try and stunt the advance onto the port city of Aden, Aden before the Houthis can get there. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the only thing I would change about that is, you know, the Houthis are already a little bit dug into the city at this point. Everything's happening. Everything's happening at the same moment. There's not a second to spare. And if the Houthis get much more 
into the city, there's not going to be any of the city left. So, you know, by the time the Emirati Special Forces are dropped out of the back of Chinook helicopters into Aden Harbour at night and have to swim their way to their Zodiac boats, you know, through these warm waters of the Gulf of Aden, by the time they get ashore, dressed as Yemenis with AK-47s instead of their higher-end kit because they want to blend in with the Yemenis, Houthis have nearly won. The defenders of Aden at that point have their backs to the sea. They have a few small pockets of the city that are left inside there under their control. They have almost no anti-tank weapons. And, you know, one of the things you really learn in this kind of warfare is that even if you have a clunky old T-55 that hardly runs anymore, doesn't matter. You've got a tank and the other side doesn't. And that causes what you'll recall from World War I, tank fear. So you need to find a way to give the defenders an ability to blunt, in particular, armoured attacks, which have significant morale effect upon these kind of civilian defenders, essentially. And that's what the UAE Special Forces do immediately. If I could give you one anecdote from the book, when these young Emirati Special Forces come ashore, they're not carrying any special kit because they want to blend in. And as the Yemeni guys said when they looked at them, First of all, they said, wow, these guys don't even have beards. Look how young they are. In the Arab world, you want your leaders, you want your commanders to be older. Age means a lot. And they looked at these young guys and they said, well, they're fit, but they've got no gray hair amongst them. Hardly any of them have grown a decent beard. They're eight men on a radio. What can they do? And when the, the Gulf Special Forces arrived, no sooner had they got their feet on the ground, then the Yemeni said, you've got to go. The Houthis are about to overrun the entire perimeter. The tanks are inbound. We can't stop them. And these young Emirati special forces said, don't worry, we'll deal with it. Leave them to us. And everyone looked at them like they were crazy. Because what could they do? They didn't even have, you know, effective anti-tank weapons with them. But then in the next 12 hours, the Emirati special forces completely changed the Yemeni opinion of them. Because they set up a command post on the roof of the uh, house, they created a very impromptu fire support mechanism whereby they're sitting there with iPhones and Androids and tablets and they've got radios and the Yemeni resistance fighters at the front line are saying, well, the tanks are coming. And they're saying, well, okay, describe to me where these tanks are compared to landmarks. And then above... A Saudi aircraft, an F-15, let's say, is saying, yes, I see that tank. And then for the next 12 hours, the Emirati Special Forces and the Saudi and Emirati air power absolutely obliterated Houthi armoured forces coming in. And they ended up destroying well over 20 tanks as well as other armoured vehicles, mainly with 2,000-pound bombs. And the, the Yemenis said, wow, eight men and a radio completely obliterated the armoured attack on our city tonight. Maybe there's more to these guys than meets the eye. Wow, that is incredible. Imagine going in there and having such a decisive impact on the conflict. Just to kind of nerd out for a second, was this reporting just purely coordinates through the radio back to the Emirati air control? Or was this also about pointing laser designators onto the tanks? Did they get that close that they had to point in the lasers so that they could guide the bombs into their target? So I spent a lot of time around Joint Terminal Attack Controllers, JTACs, in the parlance. Uh, in Iraq, uh, guys who operated in the Syrian environment, um, people in Yemen. And, you know, what's really interesting about the start of the Battle of Aden 
is that these Emirati airstrike controllers had no eyes on the battlefield themselves. They couldn't see the battlefield in any way. They were sitting in a darkened room with tons of power leads coming out of all the walls like a spider web, linking to all these different devices, you know, three or four Nokia cell phones, an Android with a cracked screen, an iPad, a couple of radios. And what they're getting from the Yemenis on the ground is verbal communication saying, I see this, it's about to cross, the t 55 is about to cross the bridge. And then the guys above with the F-15s, with their targeting pods, they're saying, yeah, I see a tank that's about to cross a bridge. I think we're talking about the same thing. So you essentially had, you know, the Yemenis are speaking to Emirati Special Forces controllers who are translating what they're saying into stuff that the pilots can understand and then vice versa, that it's going back and forth through these people. What I love about this is it's a very high-tech procedure on the one hand, but on the other hand, it's a very improvised, messy, manual system in which notepads and pencils and people with their heads clustered close together in the darkened room are what is making it work. And that's very much what I've experienced in the wars in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, is that these modern wars are a really serious blend of high-tech and low-tech. You know, without the notepad, it wouldn't work. Literally, a paper notepad. Without these kind of individual things, without an old Nokia cell phone, it wouldn't work. This is what I find fascinating about modern warfare, is the way the high-tech meets the mid-tech and the low-tech. And any wrong decision in that kill chain, that chain of command, and that's when you start to have things seriously go wrong in these cities, when you start to have air power deploying these 2,000-pound bombs on urban environments, that's when you can have civilian casualties go through the roof. But the key thing here, as you mentioned, is that the Emiratis have command of the air. And so once that's been established and you've got the special forces on the ground liaising and picking out targets, is that simply the end of the battle? No, that would be a very short book if that was the case. Um, what's interesting is that they try to go then from the defence to the attack. Now that the defensive pockets seem to have been stabilised against Houthi attack, against Houthi overrun, they start thinking about, well, how do we now liberate the city? And in particular, the airport, which is this sort of key piece of terrain. It's very open terrain. So if you're going to get to the airport, you've got to get past Houthi anti-materiel, heavy sniper rifles, 23mm anti-aircraft cannons, anti-tank guided missiles like cornets, recoilless rifles, mortars. You know, it's, it's a big challenge for a group of Yemeni civilian resistance fighters who are not used to war. And to assault over hundreds of metres of open ground under heavy fire is not something that is easy for any military. But for civilians, they say, why? Why would we do that? That's nuts. It's not going to work. And they were right. They tried a number of times then in the next phase of the battle to close that gap and overcome the Houthis at the airport, but they got massacred each time. And, you know, at this point, the Emiratis are, are trying to help them to organise a light infantry assault on the airport, and they can provide very significant programmed airstrikes 
and also naval gunfire strikes, which is a really cool part of the, the whole story, looking at how naval gunfire interacts with it all. And then eventually they even start to provide, as they bring more and more Emirati special forces in, they start to provide their own anti-tank guided missile support, Javelin and Cornet. They bring their own Emirati snipers in. They're starting to use Emirati machine guns and, and mortars, medium mortars. But even with all of this going on, it's not enough to get the Yemeni infantry across this open ground around the airport. And one attack after another bogs down. And, you know, this is, um, when you do this kind of interviewing, one of the things I love about Yemenis is that they are very candid people. I mean, they're wonderful, individualistic, very honest about their own failings. And, you know, one of the most interesting things was looking at how the two forces work together. The Emirati Special Forces, who had done, you know, over 10 years of operating alongside NATO in Afghanistan, and many other environments where they've done active operations. And then these Yemeni civilian soldiers who had a very different and very chaotic way of operating. They also almost all chewed cat, the chewable narcotic leaf. And that has a very significant impact on operations because it means that there's certain times of the day when the cat is being delivered, when everyone on the battlefield stops, the entire battlefield from end to end does a ceasefire, like, uh, you know, the, the Christmas Day ceasefire in World War One, or when everyone's playing football together in the, between the trenches. But this happens every day so that the cat deliveries can reach both sides. And when the cat delivery comes over to the uh, Gulf Coalition side of the line with the Yemeni resistance forces, the Yemeni resistance fighters are trading magazines of ammunition for cat. And who are they giving it to? The Houthis, <laughs> who are bringing them the cat, who will later that day shoot the ammunition back at them. Some of these battlefields, the truth is stranger than fiction, what's happening on the battlefield on a daily basis. And this is what I mean when I say you have this high-tech war combining with this low-tech war. The most effective logistics in the entire battle was the provision of cat to the soldiers on the front lines. There was a perfectly organized ceasefire every day to make sure that happened. And the cat would always get through. Even if ammunition didn't get through, intelligence didn't get through, food and water didn't get through, the cat would always get through. But it meant that it's very hard to marshal an attack force who is chewing this narcotic for a third of the day, well into the night, to try and get them to do an 0500 jump off into a pre-dawn attack with pinpoint timing proves to be absolutely impossible. So, you know, the Emiratis have to adapt their style of fighting to people who will virtually be four hours late for H-hour for the attack. Wow. I, you know, I'm surprised by this, but the relationship between war and drugs and soldiers is a tale as old as time. You think of methamphetamines during the Second World War, you can move through to copious amounts of drug use during the Vietnam War, and of course the problems with opium in Afghanistan. So I suppose it's continuing to be a persistent issue with conflict. But how do the Emiratis overcome this? Well, so before I answer how the Emiratis overcome it, I mean, there's even more of a narcotic aspect to this war because on the other side, the Houthis are not only chewing gats, but they are also really heavily doped up with a range of different narcotics. Um, they use a lot of captagon to stay alert and to stay awake. 
they use female menstrual cycle pills as emergency blood clotters when they get shot or wounded. They use it to slow down the flow of blood. You know, the Houthis were really very hopped up on drugs a lot of the time. And it, I mean, it was a, it did mean that they, they often were a lot more fearless than you would think. But it also made them quite kind of tactically vulnerable sometimes. At night, when they would be chewing gat and hopped up on Captagon, if an Emirati sniper would kill one of them in the dark where they felt invulnerable but were actually easily spotted using thermal scopes, another one would then come to investigate the noise of the shot and then that one would get killed. And then another one would come to investigate the noise of the shot and that one would get killed and you would end up with a pile of bodies at a doorway, let's say. So, you know, the impact of drugs on the warfare is actually quite significant in many ways. And such a waste of human life, Mike. I mean, it truly is tragic, isn't it? I will say that a lot of the Houthi combatants were not really fully aware of where they were or what they were doing. When they would get captured, their first question would often be, where are the Americans? Where are the Israelis? Or they would say, I thought I was here to fight Al-Qaeda. I didn't realise you were also Yemenis. So, you know, the Houthis used a lot of impressed forces, press ganged. They used a lot of child soldiers. I tell you what, though, Mike, just to stop you there for a second, it reminds me of, I think it was Romeo Dallaire or Michael Ignatiev's quote about, you know, where is the warrior's honour when you've got a drugged-up child wielding an AK-47. I mean, it is truly, truly tragic stuff, isn't it? When you think about how these forces are put together, they're lied to, they're pushed to the front, they're heavily drugged, they're indoctrinated, they're often children or incredibly young men. I mean, that is the tragedy of war. And then, you know, you have this sort of very thin command card who are Revolutionary Guard, Quds Force, or Lebanese has bullet-trained super professionals, and they are protected from airstrikes with a use of absolutely perfect emissions control. So they'll work out of a command and patrol center that has no emitters whatsoever, and that they will issue orders to a bike courier who will then take that order to somebody who has a transmitter, radio, or a secure messaging app like WhatsApp or Telegram, and that will be far away from where the command post is. So, you know, they, they have a tremendous respect and value for their command carder. And they have tremendous callousness for the foot soldier carder. So with all of this in mind and all of the challenges that are faced by the Emirati forces and the Yemeni forces on the ground, how does this battle for Aden, for Eden, come to an end? The Emiratis demonstrate that they can adapt to the, the circumstances on the ground. So when they find that they can't turn a bunch of armed civilians into an effective light infantry force, they say, we need to change. And so they change their operations. They make the start times around 10 in the morning instead of 5 in the morning. They also covertly insert into the defensive pocket about 140 armoured vehicles. MRAPs, mine-resistant ambush-protected vehicles, that will be able to take the light infantry force across that beaten open ground and deliver them on target into the airport so that they can make the assault, they can debust and make the assault from close range. And, you know, this is what changes the balance. The fact that they can 
insert these 140 vehicles through landing crafts at night into the defensive pocket without being spotted, because of course drones, you know, are not a big factor at that point. That means that when they strike in their final assault on the airport, their sixth attack on the airport, the Houthis have no idea that they're going to face battalion strength of armoured vehicles suddenly. And as a result, they overwhelm the Houthi defences, they crack their control of uh, Aden City, and then the defenders swarm all over them and liberate their own city. And what's really interesting is that at that exact moment, the Emiratis are landing a Brigade Minus armoured battle group into the same port, and that armoured battle group then goes and does a pursuit operation for over 100 kilometres in every direction, scouring the Houthis out of southern Yemen in, you know, a very impressive tank mechanised exploitation action. Wow. So this becomes, by the sounds of what you're saying, every single part of this is all about combined arms warfare. You've got naval barrage off the coast, you've got tanks on the ground, you've got forces moving through, you've got that command of the air, and without all of that combined together, you're never going to have any sort of victory in this environment. That's correct. And, you know, this was a level of combined arms warfare and precision firepower that the US, the UK and others didn't think the Emiratis were capable of. But they showed that they could pull it together. And in the same way that, you know, we see the Ukrainians pulling it together, we've seen other armed actors doing things that only Western militaries could do 10, 15 years ago. Well, in this very challenging environment, the Emiratis turned the local people of Aden into a competent attack force and allowed them to liberate not only their own city, but the entire south of Yemen. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time and for taking us through the dynamics of a battle that so many of us would have heard of back in 2015, but we know so little about. Like you say, it's so important to take stock and document these recent histories as they reveal so much about the future of war. So this leaves me to ask you to remind us of the title of the book and where we can buy it. So 25 Days to Aden, The Unknown Story of Arabian Elite Forces at War can be bought in all good bookshops uh, in the US, UK and other places and uh, on um, online services, uh, including Amazon. And it will be released in Arabic as well later in the spring. Perfect, Mike. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.